this is, this is in some ways a sad day for me, and maybe an exciting one for some of you, because uh, this should be uh, our last sermon in the gospel according to Mark. And uh, some of you, if you've been, if you came within the last year and a half or so, this is the only thing you've ever heard us preach from. You thought we were always in Mark, and we'd always be in Mark, maybe, and we'd never get out of Mark. Um, it felt that way sometimes for me too, but it's been a meaningful journey. Uh, we started a year ago last fall, and uh, we'll be finishing either today or next week. It all depends on how the sermon goes. It could, it could be two. It might be one. We'll see how it goes. It could be three, really. It could be four. Um, we'll see what happens. But uh, as we reach these closing verses to the Gospel according to Mark, I'll invite you to take your Bibles with me if you have access to one. And if you didn't bring one with you, you can find usually a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, it's a different version than the one I'm reading from, which I know is a big no-no. But uh, we've changed to the New Revised Standard Version for preaching just for a little bit. So that's what I'm reading from. But Mark chapter 15, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 40. And where we are in the story of Jesus at this point, Jesus has just died on the cross. And uh, the, the soldier, one of the Roman soldiers who was there guarding him and overseeing things, has just testified in verse 39, truly this man was God's son. And we find ourselves now in chapter 15, verse 40. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel this morning. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 40, and again I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee, and there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. When the evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Then Joseph bought a linen cloth, and taking down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. He then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where the body was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll the stone for us? For the entrance to the tomb, from the entrance to the tomb. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. Now I think one of the key criteria that I use to evaluate a book or a movie or a, a television series is the way it ends. Have you been that way? 
The story seems to be going pretty well. You like the development, you like the characters, but then something happens at the end and you decide, I'm never going to read or watch that again. Does that happen to you? I'm thinking of a movie I saw when I was a kid. Some of you know what I'm talking about as soon as I start describing it. But it was this wonderful movie about this... this, uh, this uh, orphan dog that wanders into a, a, a people's family and just becomes this wonderful part of the family. He's faithful and helps them to do their work as they're farmers and ranchers and they live out in the wilderness. And this dog is so incredibly brave that when they get attacked by a rabid wolf, the dog fights off the wolf and saves the kids. Amazing story. I loved it. And then the dog gets rabies and they shoot him. Old Yeller, right? You've heard, you've heard the movie? I will never watch that movie again. I remember watching that as a kid and loving every minute of it. And then with that, I couldn't sleep for days. I think I was eight years old. I'll never subject my kids to that movie. Maybe you love it because that's the way life goes. Well, you know, I get enough of life by living it. I don't need it on film. Many, it seems, have been disappointed with Mark's ending throughout the long history of the Christian church. In fact, you'll notice verses we didn't read together. Verses 9 through 20. Well, scholars today are convinced that all of those verses and various arrangements and whatnot were added to the ending of Mark because of the disquiet the early Christians had with the way he ended his gospel. But I want to... So I'm not going to preach on verses 9 through 20. Now, you won't find anything in those verses that's not biblical. It's all drawn from other stories of the Bible. You'll see references to the end of Luke and and Jesus' discussion with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You'll see stories from the book of Acts, like when Paul was bit by a serpent and he survived it. He didn't die from the venom, even though it was a poisonous snake. So everything that's in there is drawn from other places of the Bible. So there's nothing like unbiblical in those last verses, at least not that I can see. But I don't think, and nor do scholars believe, that they were original to the ending of Mark. And maybe you can understand why. Did you see the last verse of what we just read? So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Done! What kind of an ending is that? So later in the church they said, well, let's add some stuff to this. Let's take some things from Matthew and from Luke. I mean, this is a terrible ending. But I am convinced that Mark's ending, far from being abrupt, far from being inappropriate, is an apt summary of the heart of Mark's telling of the gospel of Jesus and his understanding of what the good news is and what our responsibility is to it. Now nothing, and this has been true all through the gospel, we've been here for a year and a half, if you've been with us for even half that time, you'll know this is true. Nothing in Mark has turned out as the followers of Jesus expected it to turn out. And that includes the concluding events of Mark's gospel. But it is this unspectacular ending, I think, that reminds us of our responsibility to the gospel of Jesus. And so we're going to consider four aspects of these closing verses of Mark in this unusual ending. They're all ours, and I'll explain them, obviously. And this is why I don't know how many sermons it'll be. Because each one of these could be a sermon. But you know me, I like to put a lot of material in a sermon because I don't know what you need today. Maybe one of these points will speak to you. Maybe all four of these points will speak to you. Maybe two of them will. I don't know where you are. But I imagine that in preaching the Word, God speaks. So these are the four aspects of this ending. And you shouldn't expect them. They don't build on one another. They're not organized as part of a big argument. They're really independent aspects we're going to talk about in stages. The first is reversal. The second is resurrection. The third is restoration. And the fourth is responsibility. And we're going to begin with reversal. Reversal. 
In the closing verses of the Gospel according to Mark, we encounter reversal. Now, I'm not going to read these verses again, but what I want you to focus on is chapter 15, verse 40, through chapter 16, verse 2. I'm just going to read some segments. But is this surprising to you that in the whole Gospel of Mark, we've heard a lot about Jesus' disciples? He's listed all of his disciples by name. They've been present for all these miracles. But never once until now did we know that there were this other group of people following Jesus. They're named here for the very first time. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. We know nothing about her. Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. Who are they? And Salome. And then we find out that not just them, but there's a member of the Jewish ruling council who was part of the Sanhedrin, who was there at the trials of Jesus, who believed in Jesus. Joseph from Arimathea. Who are these people? Why does Mark wait until the end to tell us they even exist? These final events of the Gospel according to Mark. You notice this? They're not entrusted to the ones who have participated in Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospel. You would expect that the ones who would have been with Him at the cross, who would have collected His body and made sure it was buried, who would have anointed His body, who would have been there on that Sunday morning to witness the empty tomb, would have been the people that we have been studying for the entire Gospel. The disciples! But not them. They're not part of any of that. The final events of the Gospel, according to Mark, they're not entrusted to those who have participated in Jesus' ministry throughout the story. The closing events of this Gospel don't include them. In fact, in Mark, and we preached on this a few weeks back, after Peter denies knowing Jesus three times at his trial, we never hear from the disciples again. This is a pretty bleak moment. The, the Jewish people in Jesus' day believed that the prophet Elijah would come to herald the coming of the Messiah and the new kingdom of God. And they were waiting for that. And Jesus told us that that person was John the Baptist. But things didn't work out well for John. He was beheaded by a vow, a, a silly vow made at a party. And then a, a, a woman asks for his head and then he's dead. It's terrible. The Elijah who was to come is dead. And now Jesus, the Messiah, at least that's the way He presented Himself, the Son of God, He's died too. And Jesus' disciples, they're gone. They're in hiding. Nobody's there. Maybe all is lost. Maybe this is the end. But Mark reveals to us in these verses that Jesus' story and His teaching and His ministry had far more influence than just the 12 people we've been focusing on. It had a pervasive reach that perhaps we only now begin to understand. And I think that's important for Mark, because when it seems like we're alone, when it seems like the world has gone sidewards, when it seems like all hope is lost, and we've been betrayed by the powerful and the godly and the holy ones who we had looked up to and now they've let us down, we think, well, the whole bottom's fallen out of this religious thing, right? But there's Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joseph and James, and Salome, and Joseph of Arimathea. There are always faithful ones. It reminds me, actually, of the story of the prophet Elijah, which is significant because he's all over the Gospel of Mark. Elijah lived in a time in which uh, evil or idolatry, the worship of false gods, was pervasive in Israel. Israel was being ruled, the northern kingdom of Israel at the time, was being ruled by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. 
And Jezebel came from a culture that worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth. And she wanted her, her culture to, to be the dominant culture in Israel. And so they had outlawed the worship of the God of Israel. And they were trying to convert everyone to worship Baal and Ashtoreth and all that. And Elijah is called by God to stand against them. And he has some victories. Some of you know the stories. On Mount Carmel, great miracles were done in which Elijah demonstrated the power of God. But even after all of that, Jezebel and Ahab are entrenched and they're powerful and they slaughter just about every good prophet. And as far as Elijah knows, he is the only one left. He feels completely alone. The world is turned upside down. The religion of Yahweh is dead. Everybody worships Baal. And so Elijah, panicky and a little depressive and maybe even moderately suicidal, if you read the story in 1 Kings 19, runs away. And he goes back to where all this whole... Jesus, well, not Jesus thing, but Yahweh thing began, which is at Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb. And he goes there to pray and to seek God's face. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to 1 Kings. I'm just going to read a little section of something that God reveals to Elijah that I think Mark is trying to reveal to us here in these closing verses. 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is at Mount Horeb, and he is praying to God. And God has asked him to stand, and he's seen the huge atmospheric disturbances and all that stuff. And then finally, after all that is over, the voice of God's come to him in a still small voice. And this is 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 13. When Elijah heard it, the still small voice, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Albel, of Abel Meholah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah learned several things that day when he thought he was all alone. And he was the only faithful one left in the world, as far as he knew. He learns that there are three others that God's going to call to be partners with him. Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. And he also learns that far, uh, somehow God was at work underneath the surface where Elijah couldn't see it. And 7,000 people in Israel had still refused to worship Baal. They were still faithful. Elijah had never met a one of them. As far as he was concerned, he was the only one left. But there were 7,000 who were still faithful. This is similar to what Mark is doing for us. He's reminding us that when the disciples had fled Jesus, when John the Baptist is dead, when Jesus himself is dead and buried, there are still people who believe. Even that could not kill the faith of all of Jesus' disciples. Mark wants to remind us that the faithful and the game changers are not always obvious. Peter, James, and John, they're the flashy ones. They were out there. Everybody saw them with Jesus. The, other, the rest of the nine other disciples, they're the flashy ones. But they're not the ones who get the testimony that Jesus is risen from the dead. They're not the ones. Actually, they are dependent. Their future with Jesus is dependent on the testimony of somebody else. In fact, reversal occurs at the end of Jesus' life. And the first 
the ones who witnessed everything he did, his closest friends, his closest confidants, are the last to hear. And the last, the ones who sat on the outside of the room, who were on the outskirts of the story, who were listening from a distance, following Jesus without fanfare, without glory, without honor, they become the first to witness His resurrection. And we too, when we share the gospel, we have to trust its power to transform. We have to trust that it's God who brings the gospel, not you and I, and that it will be more powerful than we ever have eyes to see. And even if we share that gospel and somebody fails to accept it, we have no idea the ramifications of that decision. You and I may find out that those who had the courage to simply share the gospel have led thousands more to Jesus than we ever knew we did. We might have thought we had five failures and then quit. But there's always something working underneath the surface. The, the power of the gospel is not in our hands, nor is its results. We are only entrusted to share it. Reversal. Second thing I want to look at is resurrection. Maybe this is the most obvious. Look at verses 3 through 6 of chapter 16. But this is the angel speaking. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. Not only did Jesus have many more followers than it at first appeared in the gospel according to Mark, but Jesus' death was not what it appeared. When hope was lost, when darkness had overcome, when the powers of evil and corruption in this world seemed to have had the last word, defeat has been transformed. They could kill Jesus, but they could not keep him dead. But interestingly enough in Mark, have you caught this? This is the only miracle in the gospel for which there were no witnesses. On every other significant occasion, Jesus invited Peter, James, and John to bear witness to his miracles. Whether he was raising the dead, whether he was being transfigured and transformed into his resurrected self on the Mount of Transfiguration, whether he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying feverishly for another way forward, at every one of those significant moments there were witnesses. Almost always Peter, James, and John, if not the rest of the disciples. But not to this. When Jesus was raised from the dead, no one was there. Even these women came to the tomb too late to see it. Why? I think for Mark, this gives us who do not live and walk with Jesus a place to start our journey with Him. All of us, even the disciples, only get to peek behind the curtain of resurrection once. Resurrection remains a mystery. Now, I don't know about you, but I, well, I'm sure this is true of some of you, but I'm such a nerd, it's, it always feels like only me. But I'm sure there are 7,000 who bow the same knee that I do. But I love magic mystery movies. You know, mystery movies in which there's some sort of magical sleight of hand going on, and you go through the whole movie trying to figure out how they're doing what they're doing and what the real truth of it is. One of my favorites is Now You See Me. Uh, some of you maybe have seen that. But I can think of dozens of others that do the same thing. The Prestige, any of the Oceans movies, if you've seen it, or those caper movies. You watch the whole movie, and then it, everything works out, but you have no idea how. And then there's that great moment at the end where they go back through the whole story and show you how they did everything. I love that moment. It's so satisfying to see the curtain pulled back and see the wizard behind there and to find out how they did it all. 
we don't get any of that satisfaction in Mark. We've witnessed Jesus' miracles, but the work of God in raising Him from the dead remains cloaked in darkness. How did it happen? What did it look like? How did, I mean, was it slow? Did it take a process? Did it happen instantaneously? I mean, what healed and what didn't? He still had the scars in his hands. Did he have the rest of the scars? Were there whips on? I don't know. We can only testify that Jesus has been raised. We cannot explain it. There were no witnesses to see it. And what's remarkable to me is that each of us will witness the resurrection from the dead personally. This is the only miracle in the gospel that there were no witnesses for and the only miracle in the gospel that each of us are guaranteed to witness personally. Because one day at the end of our lives, we will witness it not as an observer, but as a participant. And that is the moment when the truth of Jesus will be fully known or will fully fall. Right? In many ways, the gospel itself has been a story to prepare Jesus for that moment in which he finds himself in a tomb. And for us who follow Jesus, life itself is a preparation for that moment. No one witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, but we will all witness the resurrection at the end. <clears throat> Reversal, resurrection. These are not connected. So, you know, you can put that aside now. Let's look at the third one. Restoration is one of my favorites. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Just in that simple statement of this, if he's an angel, if he's just a person, we just have no idea. All it says is a young man in the gospel. I think Luke tells us they're angels, but we're just in Mark right now. The disciples are not lost, and neither is Peter. In fact, in Mark's telling, for all we know, Jesus' instruction was for Judas too, who had betrayed him, and had turned him over to the authorities, who was really the one responsible for him being arrested on that night. Well, Jesus let it happen, but Judas precipitated it. But in Mark's telling, we don't know what happened to Judas. For all we know, Jesus was inviting Judas to go ahead into Galilee and meet them there. But the point is, they are not lost beyond recovery. They have fallen. They abandoned Him. They betrayed Him. But they are not bad soil. The last three or more years, including their failure on the final night and day of Jesus' pre-resurrected life, have been a tilling of the soil. This has been the preparation. Now they're ready. And Jesus will meet them in Galilee, the place where they first met Him all those years ago. That He sends them back to the beginning. Go back to Sinai. Go back to where I met you. And I'll meet you there again. It's time for a new beginning in Galilee. But now they're ready to hear what Jesus has to say. And they're ready to see what He wants them to see. Finally, they can become His disciples. My grandmother had an old saying. I probably mentioned it before because I seem to say it all the time. That's the way my grandmother's sayings were. They kind of stick with me. But she used to say, you can't put an old head on young shoulders. You've heard that? It's not unique to her, I'm sure. You can't put an old head on young shoulders. The point of that is, you can't put maturity on immature people. 
You can't expect someone with no experience to behave as though they had tons of experience. You just can't expect that to happen. Many of us look back on our lives and we think, man, if I just knew then what I know now, I would have behaved differently. But try as you might, you cannot decapitate yourself today, send it back in time and stick it on that body in the past. It's useless to even worry about it. You can't put an old head on young shoulders. But part of what I want to bring that to the Gospel of Mark, I, none of us are born ready to follow Jesus. None of us. And few, if any, of us are ready to follow Him when we first commit to doing that, even if we were adults when we did it. We must be refined. We must be tilled. We must be molded. We must be broken and remade into beings made in God's image. We must mature. And when we are ready, Jesus comes again and asks us to follow Him. Do you see what happens to the disciples? Now that doesn't justify deliberate, willful, rebellious disobedience. We're not talking about this kind of weird theology that's out there that I can go and do whatever I want because I'm just a work in progress and God forgives me. The only difference between me and anybody else is that I'm forgiven and they're not. We're not talking about that theology. I don't even know where that theology comes from. That stuff gives me heartburn and makes me wonder what my responsibility is to destroy it. We're not talking about that. But this insight does remind us the failure of the disciples in Jesus' restoration of them and calling them again to follow Him in Galilee as He had first called them to follow Him. What it does remind us is that we have to be patient with each other and with ourselves. Knowing that those who fail in ignorance or because of lack of maturity will be restored and remade in His time. So for Mark, not only is the gospel more effective than it may appear, there are people following Jesus we didn't know anything about. And that's true even when we witness to Jesus. Not only is the final miracle of Jesus an event to prepare for throughout our lives for which no one ever bore witness, but also we should expect mistakes and missteps to be hurt and to hurt others as we follow Jesus. Now, if we do that intentionally, that's a different ballpark, but many of us will do it. And that's what happened to the disciples. That is part of what it means to be made into good soil. The gospel is not magic. And I wish I could get the magic. If I could just demagicify Christianity. If I could de-Harry Potter it. I would feel I had succeeded in my life. The gospel is not magic. We're not transformed overnight. The gospel doesn't just come and, and, and touch us and all of a sudden everything just falls away and we're just brand new and we just walk in brand new ways and none of the things my dad did to me matter anymore. I've forgotten them. Here we go. We're just perfect now. And if we ever said something like that, then we deceived our people. The gospel is not magic. But if we persevere, if we refuse to turn back as Jesus did and as His disciples will, at least all except Judas, who did not persevere, who did not make it through the night, who refused to survive to the next morning, who refused to survive until he met Jesus again. But all the rest persevered. And if we can persevere too, just as Jesus did, our transformation is not just possible, it's inevitable. We will be holy if we follow Him. So, Reversal, resurrection, restoration, and finally, 
responsibility. Look at verse 8. So they went out and they fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's terrifying to share the gospel of Jesus. It is terrifying to share the gospel of Jesus. According to Mark, even these first discoverers of the empty tomb did not at first intend to share the story. We live in a world where, I don't know why there's an assumption that it's easy to share the gospel, and what it's hard to do is reject the gospel. It's easy to reject the gospel. Try sharing it sometime. That is terrifying. I mean, I can't prove it. I keep saying Jesus rose from the dead, and all someone has to say is, show me! And I'm like, well, I I can't show you. It's terrifying. Even those who first discovered that empty tomb and heard these words, they were terrified to share it. Who would believe them? They hadn't even seen Jesus. They just heard this guy tell them that. How could they share the tale? What if this guy was wrong? Now, of course, we know they did share their testimony. The very fact that there were Christians reading Mark's gospel were proof enough of that. And, of course, the other Gospels give us a little bit more of what happened next and we get a fuller story. But why did Mark end his Gospel that way? Why did he want the last word we read in the first Gospel of Jesus ever written to be that people were too afraid to tell people what they knew? Because that's you and me, too. We are terrified to tell people what we know. I think he meant to remind us that the fear and uncertainty that you and I feel when we contemplate sharing the story of Jesus' resurrection with our friends or our family or our neighbors or our co-workers is no different than what the first witnesses to the empty tomb felt the day they were entrusted with it. It's terrifying to share a testimony you cannot prove and one that we feel ill-equipped to share. Jesus didn't choose like great orators on this day to bring this testimony to the disciples. He didn't even choose respected people in the culture. They were women. Their their testimony was not even admissible in a court of law. And yet this is who he entrusted the gospel to. How much... I mean, really? I used to think that to share the gospel, to be an evangelist, you had to be called to evangelism. And you had to be gifted for it. And as far as I could tell, in every class I ever took, what it took to be an evangelist was confidence, charisma, confrontationalism, courage... And counting, because you always, evangelists seemed to always know how many people they had converted. They always knew, so they had to be good at math, I guess. And so I figured that if I lacked confidence, or if I was short on charisma, or if I didn't like to confront people, or if I felt timid, or even if I wasn't particularly good at math and reporting and writing, I couldn't be an evangelist. That has to be somebody else's job. God chooses people equipped to evangelize to share the gospel, Right? And so many evangelists that I had encountered, I'd been taught by, or I had seen preach in churches and and educate us on how to share the gospel, I I kind of boiled down their personalities to one of two things. To be an evangelist, either you had to be ridiculously self-confident. Ridiculously self-confident. You had to be able to walk into a room full of people, interrupt their lives without a second thought, and say, hey, i got great news, you all got to listen to me. And then people go, what is this? And you just, you're just confident. You're just brimming. There's no self-doubt. You just go in there and you say, you're all going to hell. And Jesus died to save you. And you need to give your life to Him. And you're going to do it, right? And then the great evangelists, somehow they're so charismatic. People go, yeah, I'm going to do that. And they come running. So you either had to be brimming with self-confidence. Or, on the other hand, and I met some of these evangelists, you had to be ridiculously self-centered. 
so self-obsessed that you didn't care what anybody else was doing or what they were thinking or whether or not they were busy. You just plowed in there and you did your thing. You know, oh, you're in the middle of a shower? Well, I'll just take a minute. <laughs> They're about to cut you open, the anesthesia's on, just let me tell you about the, the gospel. Right? You just had to be so self-consumed with your own call to ministry that you just didn't care. So for me, if you weren't ridiculously self-confident or ridiculously self-centered, you just didn't have the gifts for evangelism. And I didn't feel, maybe I come across as very self-confident, I don't know, or maybe very self-obsessed, maybe. But I didn't feel either of those things, and so I thought evangelism's for somebody else. But these women have reminded me, and I hope they'll remind you, that you don't have to be specially qualified. You don't have to be specially confident. You don't have to be specially charismatic. You don't have to be specially courageous to share the good news of Jesus. It is simply entrusted to us. And its power is the power of God, not the power of you or me. And we have to trust the one who entrusts it to us. And sometimes that's what it takes to break the ice. Of course, sharing the gospel doesn't have to happen all at once. It doesn't even happen to have to happen quickly. It doesn't have to happen aggressively. But it does have to happen. If these women were too afraid to tell the disciples that Jesus was risen from the dead, they would not have known to go to Galilee to wait for Him. And then what would have happened? But somehow these ill-equipped, marginalized, apparently widowed women, because it's likely that's why they're following Jesus, at least according to the history, end up being the ones who start the whole ball rolling on the story of Jesus' resurrection. You can do that too. I have to do that too. Reversal, resurrection, restoration, and responsibility. I want to end with sort of a, a metaphor of sorts. I want us to think of ourselves as folks walking on a path in the dead of night under the new moon. No electricity, no lights. It's in that context that the scriptures say that the Word of God is a light, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Now, you have to understand the metaphor because nobody, I don't think, uses a flashlight in broad daylight. We need lamps and lights when things are dark and we don't know where we're going. This journey to follow Jesus is a journey in the dark. And that can be terrifying. And it can be confusing. And it can be upending. And this is why we need the Word. And why we need His presence. I don't know, I've shared this story maybe before with you, but I'm going to share it again. I, I, I heard, well, I'll start where I should start probably. We were waiting for a late night delivery because Gabriel had ordered something from Amazon and was all jacked up that it hadn't come on the day it was supposed to come. And it said on our little announcement that it would be there by 8 o'clock at night. And it hadn't come by the time he went to bed. So we were kind of expecting maybe it'll come, but we were pretty sure it wouldn't. But we heard this big bang outside the door. And we thought, oh, maybe the delivery died. It'd come. It's like 9.30 at night, but maybe they're really, you know... Uh, aggressive people. And so I heard the bang, but, but I was a little nervous to go outside because I'm a skittish person. So I took a flashlight and I went out down to my back door and I shined out there and I saw that our trash can was upside down. And it's a big trash can. And I thought, wow, what could have dumped that thing over? I mean, a raccoon, that's a big raccoon. Get that thing over. I mean, it's like this tall and this big. And so I'm, I'm just shining the flashlight out in the dark yard and then all of a sudden I caught it right about where Jamie and Clark are sitting. Eyes. 
And it was a bear. <laughs> and I, don't, I come from Massachusetts in like, you know, an urban kind of suburban area. I mean, I've never seen a bear in real life, you know. Uh, and so I saw it, and it was just about maybe 20 feet away from the door, and I can't tell you the, the things that went through me. And I was behind a door. I mean, he wasn't coming at me. But when I just saw that thing, this is life, right? When you're walking in the dark, I mean, you shine that flashlight, and sometimes you see a bear, and sometimes you see terrifying things. Sometimes you're just walking, and you go, I don't know if we're going in the right direction. I think this is right. It seemed like it was right when the sun went down. That's life following Jesus. But his life and his teachings and the teachings of the prophets and apostles, they provide us a light and they put our feet on a path and they ask us to trust them, not for a mile ahead, but for just as far as our vision can go. And we'll often face on that journey loneliness and mystery and fear. Sometimes we'll feel alone in that forest. Sometimes we'll feel lost in that forest. Sometimes we'll question whether or not these lights are sufficient. And in those times we look to Jesus and we remember where this road ends. It ends in an empty tomb. And that's the hope that we have to have the courage to share with others we find in the dark. We're walking on a road that leads to an empty tomb. I can't prove it to you, but will you let me tell you the story? This is evangelism. And we can't choose the road we walk or who we come by in the dark, but we can choose how we respond. There's a line in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, if you saw the movies, it was put in a different place. This is actually from the book. One of my favorites. It's at the very, very beginning of the tale when Frodo Baggins finds out that it's now given to him to take this ring and to find a way to destroy it. And he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't even want to leave home. Why do I have to do it? Can't we find somebody else? That's kind of the way he is. And he says this, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. We don't decide our road. We don't decide our forest. But we're given a light to light our way and a road that Jesus walked first so that we would know the way through it. And we get to decide how we walk it, with whom we share it. Will you be witnesses for Jesus? And you might say something like, I'm too afraid to do that. Well, join the club. These women were terrified. I don't know how long it took them after they ran away to decide they finally were going to go tell Peter, James, and John, and the others that Jesus' tomb was empty. I don't know how long it was. I can tell you that it wasn't right away. I think they went and gathered themselves, and you might need to gather yourself. We told in the other Gospels that they had other encounters to encourage them to do it. But if we're terrified, well, you might think, well, who am I? I'm not worthy. I'm not smart enough to deal with all these objections people have, you know, on evolution and, and, and the, how old the universe is and all that stuff you have to deal with in order to share the gospel. I'm just not equipped. I'm not qualified. But these women felt the same way. In their culture, their testimony wasn't even valid in a court of law. And yet that, they were entrusted to tell the story. You might say, but I don't like to bother people. I'm sure that was hard too. All the disciples hiding, going and knocking on that door. But they did it. We have to do it too. Let's be witnesses. We'll do it each in our own way. There's no one way to share the gospel. I mean, if you're really self-confident, I mean, use the model I just showed you. If you're super self-centered, sanctify it. Use that model. You know? 
But if you're a little more like me and you don't like to interrupt people's lives and you hate kind of imposing on people, then ask God to open a door and bear witness when you can. For me, sometimes it just looks like uh, having my hair cut and I go to the same place um, because I I keep hoping that maybe conversations will increase. And I just kind of wait for the right door to open and to say that I'm a pastor, to ask about their background. And it takes, I mean, here I am, I'm four years. I still haven't converted any of my hairdressers, but... They know who I am and they know what I do. And we've had conversations. This is New England, right? You don't convert anyone to anything fast. I mean, look at what we do with elections. (laughs) So it might be a long haul, but we witness whenever we can, as often as we can. Are you doing that? Are you taking those opportunities when you have them? I know it's terrifying. It should be. It was terrifying at the beginning. There's no reason for you or I to believe it ever won't be for us. But fear cannot keep us from sharing the good news. I'm convinced that this is one of the reasons that we've lost our voice. The culture didn't take it from us. We sacrificed it. We put peace over gospel. And those of us who did share it were of a certain personality type. (laughs) Overconfident or super self-centered, and it put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. We need some of you local yokels to share the gospel. We need some of you who are a little more kind, who are a little more patient, who are a little slower, who are a little more nervous about imposing on somebody. We need you! Because you can repair the reputation of our evangelists over the last 50 years. Sometimes we need just a few women in the first century to go and tell the story. Peter would get his chance. 3,000 will be converted when Peter preaches. But all God tasked with these women were 12. That was it. Peter got the 3,000. They were tasked with 12. Everybody contributes. I hope you will too. Would you stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we accept the gospel that you've given to us. We recognize that even though the moment that your resurrection was made apparent... There was terror and fear and a resistance to share the story. And yet that story was spread by these women, by the apostles, and by so many others through the centuries who have passed down the faith from generation to generation that has come to us in one way or another. Would you help us to participate in that long story? Maybe we be those who have been proven faithful with the gospel, who share it in the kindness and humility with which you shared it. And help us, Lord, to have the courage to say the words when the opportunity arises. And help us to have eyes to see those opportunities that we might not miss them. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be faithful. And to tell those who you're going to meet where you will meet them. We give you thanks for your challenge, for the gospel according to Mark. For the many hands that have copied it over centuries and millennia. That we might come to hear the story of the gospel ourselves. We thank you for your living presence with us and the way that you have called to each of us. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be that voice in another's ear. And we trust you with the consequences. In Jesus' name, amen.